This episode is brought to you by Auth0. That's Auth0.com. In this episode, we get to speak with design leader, creative director, co-founder, and CEO of Arcade, and founder and CEO of Superfriendly, Dan Maul. Welcome to the Thunder Nerds. I'm Frederick Philip Von Weiss. Thank you for consuming the show. It's a conversation about the people behind the technology that love what they do and do tech good. And speaking of doing tech good, we have a amazing sponsor for the show this year. We have Off Zero. Off Zero makes it easy for developers to build a custom, a secure, and standard-based unified login by providing authentication and authorization as a service. If you could try them out now, go to auth0.com. They're also on the uh, the YouTubes at slash auth0. On Twitch, uh, imagine the pattern again, slash auth0. And they also have a cool place for, uh, for their Avocado Labs, which is a uh, developer uh, events and, and stuff like that. Check them out at avocadolabs.dev. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get to our amazing guest. Um, I'm really excited to have him back. We have lead designer, creative director, co-founder and CEO of Arcade and founder and CEO of Super Friendly, Dan Maul. Welcome back, Dan. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I like this part too. Yeah, yeah, it's great to talk to you. I, I think when we had you on the show, it was in um, Orlando at an event apart. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that was like 2017 or 18. I, I, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Uh, right. We were talking about, <laughs> oh, okay, is that right? Yeah, and we were talking about your cool talk and uh, at, at there, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was great to get to know you, and I'm uh, really excited to have you back on the show. Yeah, me too. Uh, this is exciting for me. So thanks for thanks for doing it. Yeah, our our pleasure. Why don't we first jump into um, something that's a little bit topical, which is uh, the COVIDs. I I, I certainly got my uh, circle circle dot dot cootie shot in in this arm right here um, over my bat tattoo. Ironically, what about yourself? Did you uh, have you gotten the COVID shot? Or are you planning to? Do you have a yeah. um, a certain one that you're looking forward to? Yeah, not yet. Um, haven't gotten it yet, but I have my appointment scheduled for Saturday. So hopefully, all things go well for shot number one on Saturday. What, what are you getting? Do you do you know if you're getting the the Pfizer, the the Johnson and Johnson? What have you? I think it's the Pfizer one. I'm not positive about that, but I think it's the Pfizer one. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's what I got. I got the Pfizer. I'm uh, man, I'm I'm just I'm really looking forward to the the second shot and and kind of having some uh, security what that brings I, I don't know but ho hopefully you know i believe it gets you to 90 94 um uh, security in, in a way I, I keep using that word but I, I don't know what else to call it but I, i'm just hoping that uh you know we uh we move past these things and we get to some some level of, of normalcy or, or start building up to that I, i'd like yeah. to ask you though how, how has it affected you your family and your your business um, in a lot of ways, it's been like business as usual. So like super friendly, which is the agency that I run, um, 
we've always been distributed since we opened in 2012. We've always kind of worked remotely. So in terms of like working from home and everybody doing that, it hasn't really been much change. The big difference is that everybody else is home too. So it's like everyone's families and kids and, and all of that stuff. And that's new for, for all the super friends. So that's really been the biggest thing, adjusting to kids in school. My kids go to Catholic school. Um, so there was a, a portion where they were at home uh, doing learning from home. And then there's a portion where they were going to school in person because they have small class sizes. So just adjusting to all of that has been weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd imagine. Um what about uh what about your wife? I know she's she actually just recently uh, started her own company too, right? That's right. She started a business as of uh, I think earlier this week, yeah, maybe last week, I think. Um, and so that's been going really well too, you know, for the for the last week. Um, my wife's a stay-at-home mom. She's a writer also. Um, she finished up her first novel uh, recently. So, you know, again, working from home. So we're used to it. The, the big complication is really just that the kids are at home with us too. So the space that we had before yeah. to kind of like do our own thing and do our own work has evaporated because everybody's home all the time. So, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to figure that out has been has been a struggle. Um, but, you know, we're coping and we're uh, we're trying to do the best we can. Do, do you mind if I ask you what the uh, what the novel is about? Is it a... Uh... Science fiction, science, technology. What, yeah, so what it's, a, it? it's a young adult fantasy that she's writing. And I actually don't know what it's about because one of the things what? that she read, yeah, one of the things that she read in Stephen King's book was he was like, never show your first draft to your spouse. It's the worst thing that you could do. So everybody else Ooh. knows what the book is about. I know very briefly what it's about. I know it's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a bit Harry Potter-esque. Um, there's a female lead. Um, and, uh, and that's really all I know. Um, so she won't let me read it until she gets a little bit farther into the editing stage. That's really funny. I actually, I'm, I'm in the middle of my finishing my chapter two of my book, which is, uh, hopefully I'm going to be pushing out soon, which is all about, um, creative direction and how to talk to people and, uh, get your ideas out there. But yeah, the, I, I guess I broke that rule right away. Cause every time I wrote a little bit, I asked my wife, I was like, Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Is that any good? I don't know. Totally. I, I do the same thing when I write like <laughs> blog posts or anything like that. And so she does the same when she writes to her blog, but the, the book is different. I think it's a little bit closer. Okay. That makes sense. You know, um, uh, speaking about your family and, uh, and super friendly, which I definitely want to dive into in a little bit, I'd love to talk about um, your, your beginnings of being a freelancer. And, and I found this really interesting article that you, um, well, not an article, rather a video where you were talking about um, being a freelancer and why you left your day job for independence. I think that was the title of the video. And you wrote about the common misconception about people using the term freelancer, um, that there's a lot of, uh, uh, some, some people will take that in the wrong way. They'll, they'll, um, they'll think about it as someone that's um, uh, lazy or they, they live in their parents' basement, which I'm, I'm quoting uh, from the video here. Uh, do you mind going into that and uh, how you started with, um, you know, you were working a full-time job, you were doing freelance at night when you would come home and you, you kind of were testing the waters of what it would be like to do freelance, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the things that's tough about freelance uh, in general is that like, especially in our industry, is that there's not a lot of signals as to whether someone is good or bad at their job, right? So like, if you think about the the, the trade that we have as designers or developers or engineers or writers, um, these are these are trades. 
and they are self-taught usually. Like not everybody goes to school to do them. Some people do and get a degree in you know design or graphic design or web design. Um, and then other people don't, they just kind of learn it on their own and they, they figure it out. So, so it's hard for people, I think, to know where we sit on that spectrum. Like, are we trained it and are we good at what we do? Or is this something that's like a hobby, right? There's a lots of, lots of web designer hobbyists out there and there's also professional web designers who do that as a living. So I think the term freelancers is too broad because it encompasses that whole spectrum and in our industry, we don't have things like certifications, you know, generally uh, there are some, you know, but it's not a, a kind of a, a, an accepted standard quite yet. So it's hard for people to know what, what they're going to get when it comes to a freelancer. And so unfortunately that affects those that are more professional and those are, that are, have been doing this for a long time, get lumped into the same bucket as those who have not been doing it for a long time and do it maybe as a hobby. So I think we need better terms and we need better ways to kind of signal that that this is something that we can actually be professionals at, you know, and and be knowledge workers as opposed to, you know, I feel like everybody has a version of the story of like, oh, my nephew builds websites too, uh, which is like, well, that's <laughs> cute, yeah. you know, <laughs> but that's very different than what I do too. So I think that the, the term freelancer is loaded and we tend to have to fight against that um, to, you know, just even to get paid what we're worth sometimes. I think a lot that could contribute to that is the whole um, gig economy that everybody refers to lately is that a lot of people are like, you know, you have this job, you have this job, you have this job, and you don't, maybe you might not specialize in one thing, but, you know, on, honestly, people are trying to just get by. And especially in this environment, it's it's really difficult. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't understand what's wrong with the term freelancer. And if, if that's what you're doing, that's what you're doing, then that's great. Um, but do you think more people should, um, empower the term of, um, of of CEO of X company, like they should go out and make a uh, an LLC and go that way and uh, post that on LinkedIn. Is that for everyone to go down? Or is that, you know, more of a very specific kind of thing? If, if you know that you're a specialist, uh, maybe you want to pursue that path. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so bold as to say like, oh, everybody should start a company and have a company name right. and do all that stuff. Like, that's that's good for some folks and that's not good for other folks. And I think, and, and I also didn't mean to say that the term freelancer is a bad term. It's just that it means lots of different things. And so that's, I think that's the, the trouble with it is that we don't know what it means. You know, some people who are freelancing are doing it between full-time jobs, right? And that's the point of it for them is like, they have a full-time job, they wanna do their own thing for a while until the next full-time job. And then other folks are like, no, 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 this is the business that I want to run, which is me being a hired gun for other studios or agencies or for direct to client or, you know, whatever that is. And that's my job is to kind of duck in and do my thing over here for a short amount of time and then move along to the next thing. Both of those are viable paths. Both of those are good paths. Um, but we don't know which one we're talking about when we, when we talk about the term freelancer. So depending on which one you are, depending on what you want to do with it, you know, some freelancers go into it going like, I'm going to start with myself and I'm going to eventually grow into a larger company where I hire people. And then others are like, no, I just kind of want it to be me, you know, and, and I want to just do my own thing and be an independent person and work that way. So again, freelancer is such a broad category that it feels like it's an umbrella term for lots of different things. And, and you know, some of the things that might come under those terms are like, there are people who are independent freelancers or independent business owners. There are people who are one person agencies, you know, and that's kind of the way that they describe themselves. There are, you know, mm -hmm. there are full businesses, there are hired guns, there are permalancers, right? That's another version of it where those are people mm -hmm. who are freelancers that don't work as W2 employees, but essentially do long stints or long contracts with companies. So like, 
all of that is is encompassed in the term freelancer. And so, you know, anybody that's a freelancer tends to have to qualify what they mean by that when somebody's trying to hire them or they're talking to somebody about what they do. Yeah, it's interesting because, and again, we'll we'll dive into this in a minute. Is uh, you are the only employee at technically, if if uh, that that's still correct, at Super Friendly, and you have uh, an array, uh, array, excuse the pun, an array of uh, employees uh, that that work for you, which are freelancers, and that's how you could. Um, cite the best people for the position, and I, I'd like to just first start off by uh, discussing the, the 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 Sega Genesis here of uh, sure. the beginning of uh, of Super Friendly, because a lot of it was, from my understanding of what I read about you, it's it's the uh, oh, trying to find that you know the quintessential life work balance, right? That we're all uh, seeking, we're all hunting for. And for you, you you wanted to spend more time with your family, which is you know, admirable. We we all want that. So you you went that path and you started this company. Do you mind just kind of uh, telling us about uh, you know, what that was like, what that felt like? Maybe you know some trepidation. I, I imagine there there's some fear of leaving your full time job or, or or starting starting this while while you still have your full time job. I'm not sure. Yeah, totally. So definitely, there's a lot of there was a lot of fear and a lot of risk. But I did things to try to mitigate some of that risk and some of that fear. So you know, one thing is I had a job that I loved that paid me well. Um, I worked at the time. I worked at Big Spaceship, which is an agency in New York. Um, they're still around. They're still doing great stuff. They've been around for I don't know 20 years, 25 years, something like that. Um, and it was my dream job. You know, the problem was that I was working long hours there, you know, and that's like that was part of the the culture of, I think, agency work. It wasn't necessarily their culture. You know, uh, it was mostly like sometimes you'd work long hours to get work done. Um, and so I just didn't see a way out of doing that other than asking for things that I thought would be unreasonable, which is like, you know, I know everybody's working long hours here, but like, could I just work like five hours a day? Would that be cool? You know, could I work here part time somehow, but be treated like everybody else? Like it was just, it just felt like a, an unreasonable thing to be asking about. And so instead, you know, what I, what I tried to do was because I had that security of a full-time job, I was like, okay, well, I can make an investment in that. I can basically work two full-time jobs. I would work at the agency during the day, and then I'd come home and have dinner with my wife, and then I would I would work another full-time job, you know, at, at night. Um, and so I didn't get a lot of sleep for that year, but I got to experiment with a lot of different things. Um, and and before starting Super Friendly, so when I started Super Friendly in 2012, at that point, I had worked at other agencies for 12 years. So you know, I'm not really starting from scratch. I already had clients lined up. I had a good portfolio based on the work that I had already done. You know, so like I had all these all these advantages. You know, all this privilege in starting an agency. It wasn't like starting from scratch with nothing. It was like it was. I had a lot of things already. So you know, as I worked the two full time jobs, I was able to test how much I could charge a client, you know, and not be afraid that a client was going to say no, because I had a full time job and I had a good salary. So if somebody said, Oh, the price is too high. It wasn't like, Oh, well, not going to eat this month. You know, I, I didn't have that risk. And I didn't have that worry in a lot in a way that a lot of freelancers and a lot of business owners do because for you know, this industry is a lot of feast or famine. So I had all these things that I was able to test while I had a full time job. That then mitigated the risk when when I started Super Friendly. It was like I already had clients lined up. I already had contracts that I knew I could use. I already had a way of doing business that I'd already tested out when I was freelancing. I'd already tested the idea of like, could I build teams and could that be a thing that I sell? You know, teams of freelancers. Like, and how do you organize those? How do you direct them? How do you get everybody on the same page? Like all of those things. I had already experimented with those prior to you know to day one of Super Friendly. So I feel like I started at a pr pretty big advantage when when starting my agency.
Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I, I, I like too that you, you know, you took that time to, uh, to just experiment and see how it would work. Like you said, feast or famine, it's kind of like the, um, the old um, thing where people would say, oh, you, you just get on a bus and you go to LA and you become a, a movie star, right? Like it, it's, you know, maybe, maybe think about a strategy, have that full-time job and, and try freelance out while, while you're doing that, while you could, you know, make sure that you, you could still eat and uh, experiment. You don't have to go all in where I, I think some personalities uh, do or have to, uh, to, to be sane, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, one of the things that was really helpful for me is I got to learn, you know, by working for other people for so long, I got to learn on somebody else's dime. So like, I didn't have to make mistakes on my own dime. I actually could do, you know, I actually could make mistakes and somebody else would pay me for that. Like that is a, that is a massive privilege to have. And that is a massive advantage to have. Um, and especially for those people, like one of my superpowers is I'm able to learn from other people's mistakes. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who has to make mistakes on their own in order to, to get the lessons from them. So the the ability to observe how other people do things and then mentally kind of reconcile like okay yeah if i ever have my own thing like i would do that or i would do that a little bit differently or i would stay away from that like i had a lot of a lot of time and experience to be able to observe those things and then formulate okay well what would my version look like you know how could i remix all the pieces mm -hmm. that i enjoyed and then also eliminate some of the pieces that i thought were were faulty or i had a, a different version of how i wanted to, to try it out you know and so that was a kind of a long time in the making even though i didn't realize it you know certainly at, at, at first um you know that was a long time in the making yeah so maybe we talk about the the model that you have with super friendly um again discussing the whole freelance life and what goes into that. It's again, you're the only employee at Super Friendly and you, um, and I'll, I'll let you say this in your own words, but um, from my understanding, it's you're sourcing the best people for a project. You're finding people that fit within that special uh, unique need, that challenge from the customer. And that, with that, you're able to provide the best service moving forward. Am, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. You got it. You got it exactly right. I'm, I'm the only employee and everybody else is a contractor. Um, and what we try to do is is pitch that way, you know, and, and say, like, this is the best the team, you know, for you. And one of the things that kind of led to that was I remember when I was at Big Spaceship and, and working there, we we pitched um, Crayola uh, at the time and we oh. walked in the meeting um, and we had there was four four of us in the meeting and we all kind of went went and introduced ourselves. I said, hey, I'm Dan. I'm design director and kinda went around the table. And one of the, the people on the project is my friend Vic and Vic introduced himself as a strategist. He said, I'm going to be the senior strategist working on this. And in a previous life, I was an elementary school teacher um, and the client stopped us and he said, well, hang on a sec. Like, did you say you were an elementary school teacher? And Vic was like, yeah, I taught for, you know, this many years. And, and um, the client, Rob, who was the head of digital at Crayola, he, you know, Crayola uh, does a lot of things for teachers and parents and kids, you know, in addition to making products, they really are invested in how, how kids learn uh, and how creativity manifests in learning. So as soon as he heard that Vic was a teacher, an elementary school teacher, he's like, well, you guys win. You all win then. Like, that's it. Like, well, we wow. pick you. And I was like, uh, and that was it. The pitch was over. It was like, and, and it made me realize, like, if you have the right people on the team, sometimes that's how you win. Right. Sometimes the way that you win is you go like you just have people on the team that other agencies don't have. They don't have. And so it made me realize, like, if we could just have all the right people on the team at all at, at the given time, at the right time, then for some of those, we just win. Like we win based on that. Now, to employ all of those people would be incredibly expensive, you know, <laughs> but maybe they don't have to be employed. Maybe they just have to be 
willing to commit a certain amount of time to the work, which I'm like, oh, that sounds like what freelancers do anyway. So if all of the folks could be in the network, could be in the Rolodex and could be a phone call away and I could incentivize them appropriately, whether that's with money or freedom or something interesting to do or the team to work on or a client, you know, whatever those incentives are, perhaps there's something there, perhaps there's a model there that we could, we could use. And so as I researched that more, I'm like, well, that's, you know, <laughs> I'm not inventing that. That's called the Hollywood model. That's how Hollywood makes movies, you know, like the way that I talk about it is that Brad Pitt is not a full-time employee anywhere. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio is not a full-time employee. They're essentially 1099 oh. contractors, right? So like studios <laughs> like like employ them, you know, freelancers, actors, directors, photography, you know, and they all come together for an amount of time, two years, three years, five years to make a movie. And then they all go their separate ways after that. And they have no idea if they're going to make another movie together again. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe the whole team will get back together. Maybe they won't but that doesn't stop them from making something really good together, or at least trying to. And I'm like, man, I mean, Hollywood has that figured out. Um, so it, could that model work in digital? You know, and so that was kind of the, the Sega genesis of, uh, of Superfilm. <laughs> it makes me think of uh, the Avengers where you have all these, you know, like you said, the, these talented individuals that come together and make a movie and wow, you know, that's, that's a team. I mean, I prefer the Super Friends instead of the Avengers, but you know. <laughs> oh, is that what you're going for? I, I noticed with a few of the companies, uh, the, there's a super theme, right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. So why don't we, uh, why don't we discuss uh, one of the new or, or newer, you could tell me when this came out. From my understanding, it's a little bit newer. The, the making design systems people want to use. And I'll I'll share uh, I'll share my screen so we could both look or we could all look at it together. But um, do you mind if we uh, kind of uh, touch on that and talk yeah, about sure it a little that. bit? Sounds good. Yeah. So I imagine everybody could see this right now, right? I can see it. Perfect. So um, tell us about uh, how, how this came about and wh what what design systems people don't want to use, as, as the title implies. Yeah, sure. So um, <laughs> uh, super friendly is generally expensive, right? And, and I like to say, I like to think that's because we, we deliver a lot of value to our clients um, and that they make more money from hiring us than they would uh, by not. Um, and I, I hope that's the case for every time. It's probably not, um, but we'd like to try for that. And, um, and there are just some clients who need what we do or need what we know, but can't hire us because they can't afford to or the timing's not right or, or whatever. And so one of the things that we wanted, we wanted to do for a long time is have something at all different price points. So if there's a client that can spend a million dollars, we have something for them. And a client that can spend a thousand dollars, we have something for them. Um, and we just haven't been good at filling in kind of the lower end of, of that. And so the course is kind of the, the first step in that, which is like, you know, we turn away a good, a good deal of clients for lots of reasons, you know, and one of those reasons is price. Um, you know, we try to be as accommodating as we can, but like, you know, for those that have a thousand bucks to spend, we don't want to just say like, sorry, go away. You know, it's like, well, maybe you could take our course. Maybe you could learn about design systems. You still have to do a lot of the work on your own based on what you, you know, what you learn as opposed to hiring us to help you with it. But, you know, at least that's something like, hopefully that's better than nothing. So that's kind of where that course came from. And one of the things that we, that we experience every time we work with a client on design systems is every single time when we go and we talk to them, they go, you know, we tried this design system thing like a year ago and a, a team here kind of put together some components and they thought it'd be good and they shared it with all the other teams and then no one really used it. And so, you know, we're just not sure if a design system works for us. And I'm like, oh, no, no, but it does. Um, 
But every client, you know, the, the screenshot that you have up here, the episode four, every client we've ever worked with has a design system graveyard. It's like, yeah, we tried it and then and then it died and then, you know, we buried it. And so we're just not sure how to go about this. So that that's the thing is like there is a process and there is a good way to get people invested and going like, I really want to use that design system. But there's a lot of a lot of teams go about it the wrong way, even though it's the intuitive way. Um, they go about it the wrong way. So we, we just wanted to teach like how we make successful design systems with our clients. I, I wanted to read this because uh, this echoes in my head of, of what you have here. It says it, it takes a specific process and mindset to make a design system that actually gets used. What What is the challenge? Um, I, I understand that people probably... Um, shy away from any kind of digital governance they right away the a wall goes up and i'm not going to do this 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 way you know human nature is uh people don't want change they what i've been doing it this way for three years it works fine if it's not broken don't try to fix it was that summertime some summertime well yeah um anyway but yeah what what, what is it why why do people not want to use these things uh, some of the times why why is there resistance I think you nailed it. It's all the human nature stuff, right? It's all the like, yeah, yeah. but I've been doing it this way and you haven't convinced me that your way is better. You know, so that's one thing. And, and how that specifically applies to a design system is what a lot of teams do is they go, let's make a bunch of basic building blocks, right? We'll make cards and tables and headers and footers and all that stuff. And then we'll give that to all the teams internally. And then a team will see it and they'll go, yeah, but that card doesn't have uh, two buttons in it, right? And I need, I need our cards to have two buttons instead of one. So therefore, right, right. I can't use it. You know, it, it would take me longer to understand what you're doing, modify it, add a new button, add another button without breaking anything. Well, for that, I might as well just do it the way that I've been doing it. Ah, I'll just use Bootstrap, right? And we hear that all the time. Ah, I'll just use Bootstrap. Ah, I'll just use Material Design. Who cares? Yeah. yeah, because they know how to use it, right? That's mm -hmm. that's the reason. And so so just making a bunch of things and like handing it to people go like, yeah, I use this. You know, oftentimes they go like, but I can't or it just looks more difficult than the way I'm doing it now. So all the things that design systems are supposed to do, you know, help you be more consistent, help you be more efficient. The adoption part of it is like, but it's gotta be better. Like it's gotta even be, it has to attract you by by being better, you know? And if that, yeah. if you don't even clear that hurdle, then most folks go like, yeah, just keep using Bootstrap. It's been fine, you know? So like, so the human nature stuff is, how do you get somebody to do something new well, you have to find their incentive. And most teams don't mm -hmm. go far enough to find the incentive. Like, what's the incentive to, to redo someone's whole process of how they've been building something? There is no incentive, you know, usually. In fact, it's the opposite, it's usually risk. Oh, so you want me to learn something new and use your thing? And if I don't do it well, then potentially I could get fired or demoted. And if I do it well, though, there's no reward. So like, why would I do that? <laughs> you know. And so that's that's usually the hurdle to clear is that, the incentives aren't made clear. Um, and, and so part of the course is about going like, how do you expose the incentives? How do you build it in a process that that exposes the incentives clearly and upfront and then gets that automatic buy-in and that automatic kind of contribution process? And that's the the idea of piloting that, that um, I think it's episode five or something in, in the course. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you then, as, uh, that brings a, a, an interesting question uh, up, I, I think, to me. Who who exactly is this for? Who Who is the intended audience? Is this for um, somebody at a, uh, you know, like a VP level to bring it to their team and say, hey, I need uh, I need everybody to watch this, understand it? Or is this something that you could use uh, 
possibly in, in, in an advantageous way as a tool to um, get a conversation started like, hey, you know, the, these these people are coming in. Uh, why don't we all take a look at these videos and uh, they will help us understand where we're going to go in the future? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, for, it's less for VPs. It's less for C-level. Um, I think those folks have different kind of conversations than the conversation that we have in the course. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the course is mostly for like directors, managers, people who are managing teams of designers and engineers or, or product folks who just don't have the language to talk about design systems well. Like, you know, they, maybe, they may understand it at a high level. They may understand like, yeah, design system is mostly like a, a kit of parts that we can use to make other stuff faster, right? Um, but then part of it is, especially when I talk to, um, you know, product owners or product managers and, and, you know, even a lot of design directors or engineering managers, when they look at it or when they think about a design system, they sort of conflate it with like, oh, yeah, that's like a UI kit, right? And it's like, well, no, not really. You know, or that's, oh, yeah, yeah, we have a component library. Well, that's, it's different. So I think part of it is just getting everybody on the same page, giving folks language on what to use to go like, here's the difference between these things. Here's why one thing, here's why a component library is different from a design system. And here's why you, here's how, how you could use a design system actually more in to take more advantage of it than, than, a, than a component library. So a lot of it is for kind of director level folks and managers who need to have the language and a more integral understanding of what their designers or their engineers or the product folks are doing. Um, and then it's also for practitioners too. It's also for designers and developers, mostly for, you know, designers understand what a design system is, but they don't really understand how engineers work with a design system and then vice versa. Mm -hmm. Engineers are like, yeah, yeah, I get what it is, but how do designers actually use this? So a lot of this is about understanding what the other side does. You know what, like if you're an engineer, how does a designer work with this and how do I work with a designer with, you know, to either make a design system or use a design system? So it's for that tier of folks. It's like directors and managers and practitioners in the design engineering kind of product trifecta. There's an interesting comment from Todd Libby here. Uh, two buttons go in, one button walks out. A lot of this sounds like comfort zone. People don't want to leave. Um, I, I think we we kind of touched on that. It's A lot of it is just that. Uh, I'm gonna hold on to my blanket, and you're not gonna take it away. This is, you know, this is my blanket, right? Totally. I don't know if that's a fair analogy or not. Absolutely, Todd Libby. That's a great, uh, great thing. And thank you, Todd. It's nice to hear a comment from you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's true. It's like, um, why would you give up your blanket unless you got a better one, and unless you thought it was better, right? Not that somebody else saying like, oh, this is better. Like, you know, I have kids. I remember when they were younger, I couldn't take their blankies away from them, even if I was like, but this one's better. This one's softer. This one's new. This, it wasn't attractive enough. You know, and so, yeah, yeah. but once we find something like, oh, I'll give you chocolate with it. They're like, okay, cool. I'll give up my blanket, right? So like, sometimes, <laughs> chocolate. sometimes yeah. it's irrational. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't know. Um, and yeah, I think you gotta, are, you gotta switch that brain. Totally, exactly. So I think those are the things that, you know, design system teams don't have enough practice at that, um, that stops us from, you know, stops other teams from wanting to adopt the good work that we're doing. I, and I don't want to go too too deep in the woods in here, but I, I just want to touch on some of these things because I I think they're important for maybe uh, people that are trying to get their eye their mind around what a design system is. And like for uh, episode number three here, that you have um, you know component libraries versus design systems. Do you, just just for the sake of brevity and getting that out there, do you, a, a quick explanation of a design system and wh why it's not a uh, a component library. Yeah, design systems or are part kind of, of it. You know. Yeah, 
design systems are connected. That's the big difference. Component libraries aren't really connected to anything because component libraries, you can copy and paste from them. That's how you use them, right? I, if I use Bootstrap as a component library, oh, I copy the card code, you know, the HTML, I paste it into my thing. But if you update something, if, if Bootstrap updates, oh, I got to go back and recopy and repaste. Oh, but I overrode my changes that I actually changed. It's the connectedness. So most design systems, I would venture to say, almost all design systems are probably package managed. They're software products. They're probably built on NPM or Yarn or something that you can use as a dependency. And that's what creates the connection between your app and the system itself, right? Component libraries aren't connected, UI kits aren't connected. So there's a lot to cover there, but that's the, you know, that's the 60 second version. Well, and, and that's why uh, someone needs to go in and watch these videos because you, you go into all that and it's, uh, I'm sure it's a, a great explanation when, when uh, some of you had, somebody actually watches the, the full video. The other thing I just want to briefly touch on, because again, I, I don't want to give everything away here, is about the, the buy-in part. So we, we talked about the, the friction, the resistance. Um, so buy-in isn't a thing that you get once before you create a design system. It's an ongoing investment. So I, I, I just I found that so insightful because, you know, not every project is a living, breathing project. That's not you wrote a book, the book's printed, it's done. But also when you when you have these projects, they they live on. Uh, I think uh, some of the videos that I, I've, I've seen you talk about is, you know, companies, it, it's, they don't have just one website now or, or, or this or that. It's they have a website, they have an Internet, they have X amount of websites. It's. Uh, there, there's a, they have X amount of apps. These are things that live and breathe and they evolve as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the point of this stuff is like, and that's why they have to maintain a connection because as your app evolves, the system, and as the system evolves, you want both of those to kind of move in stride. You know, otherwise when you disconnect it, that's where we get legacy applications from. That's where we get like, oh, we haven't touched that thing in seven years. And actually to update that, that would be its own project. And that would be a year long project where it's like, it doesn't have to be, you know, if you can architect it well enough, it doesn't have to be. So I think, you know, that's kind of the point of it is like digital things change, you know, and that's the advantage of them as opposed to, you know, doing print work or something. Digital things can change and you can change them often. So why not change them in a way that everybody gets the benefit of those changes? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So again, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, for all that. So everybody could uh, uh, take a look at that and, uh, and uh, really explore those videos. Um, Great stuff there. And the next thing I really want to talk about is Arcade. And uh, I love this for design tokens. I don't know if everybody gets gets the pun right away of putting the coin in. Um, but for, for the for again, for the sake of brevity, if for the people that don't know exactly what a design token is, I, I'd rather hear it from you as, as the expert. Yeah, sure. Uh, for what it's worth, still workshopping this, um, you know, because it's fairly new. I, I usually point people in other directions. There's a great video that Gina Ann made about design tokens. She put it on YouTube and on her on her Twitter. Um, it's a great, it's a it's a much better explanation than I've ever given. Um, so I usually point people there. The short version that I've got, the best that I've got so far here is a design token is sort of like a way to capture a brand decision. So for example, think of every any company that you might know of or the company that you work with, you probably have a main brand color, right? So like, like mm -hmm. Spotify has green and Lyft has pink and Hertz has yellow, you know, all that kind of stuff. And everything that you make is gonna use that same brand color, right? Now the problem is 
if you have to distribute that brand color, that's a difficult problem to have. That's why you see, you know, Spotify's green is a little bit different everywhere, you know, because they're not connected to one source. And so the idea of design tokens is if you can connect all those things to one source, if you could define the green in one place and then everything else that needs to use that green references that one place, that way if Spotify green ever changes or, you know, they want to make it darker or lighter because they want to be, to be more accessible or it goes through a rebrand and Spotify green is now Spotify purple, you know, when you change it in that one place, every other place that is referencing that token then gets the ability to be updated. Again, this goes with the design system thing where once it's connected, you get a lot of advantages. So a design token is a way to kind of capture some of that stuff. And it's not just colors, it's spacing, it's typography, you know, it's all, you know, animation time, it's all sorts of things like that. It's kind of capturing your brand properties, putting them in a place and then allowing other things to reference them. So Arcade is a way to kind of store some of those be able to interact with them in a, in a much smarter way than some of the tooling that exists currently. So, so why, what exactly did you uh, start this company? What, what, why, um, what was the thing that you saw and you were like, you know what, I, I, I need to get this going. So it's super friendly. We do a lot of design systems work, you know, kind of like we talked about. And every client that we work with wants tooling like this. And I don't blame them. So, so do we, <laughs> you know, we're like tool, like a tool that will help you capture these design tokens and put them somewhere and reference them would be great. And, you know, we hard code them, we do it manually. Uh, I know lots of teams that do that, or they build their own solutions for them. And they're just not sustainable. You know, they're, they're not sustainable in the same way that any custom built tool that you make is not sustainable, right? It's great, it probably works for your needs. But then that person leaves the company or like, they get reallocated to something else. And then all of a sudden, you're stuck trying to maintain this thing that nobody else knows how to do. So after years of actually just like, our clients saying like, do you have a tool for this? And we're like, not really. You know, and, and for us being like, who is going to make this? Um, we figured we should make it. Makes sense. It's uh, it's totally in, uh, in in your wheelhouse and uh, what, what you guys are doing. Um, I wanted to read this, which is, it, it says here, uh, a fun way to create, edit, and manage design tokens for enterprise teams. Um, you, you specifically use the language enterprise teams, which uh, I, I get, but do, do you mind just talking about that pain point specifically for enterprise teams and how that can help mitigate some of that, uh, some of the challenges? Yeah, sure. So we worked with a client a, a year ago, uh, no, two years ago now, and um, they were undertaking a rebrand, right? And, and their rebrand, uh, was very minor when you compared to when you when you talk about like what rebrands generally are. If we think about rebrands, it's like we're going to change the logo and our color palette, and we're going to have different messaging, and we're doing all this. Stuff. So the rebrand for this company was all of our buttons are currently yellow. We're going to change them all to purple. And that was the rebrand. And I was like, okay. They estimated that effort to be, uh, I think, three years and however many millions of dollars, right? Tens of millions of dollars because they have that many apps, they have that many products, they have that many things, right? And it's like, we're talking about one button change, like just changing the color of a button. But when you think about, well, they have hundreds of apps, you know, some are on legacy code, some are not even on the current tech stack, some they don't even have people that know the technology that they're built on anymore. Imagine going into those apps one by one and just, you know, if it's architected well from a front end perspective, maybe it's changing a few lines of CSS, but I don't know, not all of them are architected well either, right? So like, imagine yeah, every yeah. app, one by one, every site, every app, you're having to go in, we're talking about iOS, we're talking about Android, we're talking about web, we're talking about, you know, kiosks, we're talking like all of that stuff. And it's like, changing one button, 
you know, a few years, a few dozens of millions of dollars, right? Like, so, so it's a massive problem for, and they're, I know they're not the only one, you know, like lots of companies have that same problem where it's easier for them to just declare bankruptcy on the apps to go like, we're just going to make a bunch of stuff from scratch because it's easier. Even that is a massive effort. What like, so you're choosing between two really poor options. Um, so that's why we're focusing on enterprise teams. You know, ultimately we might kind of open this up to like, yeah, anybody that wants to use design tokens. But right now it is such a pain point specifically for enterprises that have many digital apps that we want to try to solve that first because, the, because I think that there's a lot of impact there. Um, and then maybe we can kind of expand the, the, the user group to a little bit larger, but that's where we're starting on it. Yeah, I could totally see if you have a, a larger company, like you said, and changing the color or changing a logo across all the applications and websites and just being able to just do that in one, one spot without um, interacting with um, several different team members several different times or, or probably a lot more. What am I talking about? Several um, hundreds of different team members all across uh, the world. It's it's. Yeah, as as you pointed out, that's quite a challenge. So um, why don't we why don't we discuss the the, the podcast? I'm so interested in this podcast, and uh, so it's the Get It Out of Your System podcast. Clever name once again. Uh, when, when did you actually start this? Oh boy, um, I think that was maybe three years ago or two years ago, something like that. Um, so we have a season, you know, a season out that's about. I think six episodes or something like that. We've been working on yeah, season yeah. two for a while, but it's just kind of been on the back burner because of other other things. Um, but it's a podcast where we ask guests one question. We ask like, what's the hardest thing that you're dealing with in terms of your design system right now? And that's it. And we go as long as the conversation goes. Some conversations are 10 minutes, some conversations are 30 minutes. Um, we just follow all the rabbit holes, you know, that we go down. And, uh, and it's a pretty fun conversation with the folks that we've had on so far. So why did you actually um, uh, start the podcast? What what was the uh, in, in, inspiration to actually get into podcasting? I like talking to people. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's part of what it is. And um, and you know, and so that's one thing. The other thing is, and I think this is kind of a common thread between all of our design system things. So design systems are so new, you know, general relatively in our industry over the last decade that so many people and so many teams just don't know if they're doing it like everybody else, you know, and they're just like, we have no idea. We have no relative measure of this. And I think it's important to hear from people like you in the positions that you're in, you know, the, for, for all the listeners, like to hear that somebody else is like having the same problems that you are. You know, I think there's a lot of camaraderie in that. And I think, you know, a design system is a community effort. Ultimately when it's done well, a design system is serving all of the different parts of an organization from product to engineering, to QA, to content, to, you know, all of those things to brand. And, and so I think that we need a sense of community in the design system industry, you know, and I think that conferences like Clarity um, and, and, um, and the design system Slack channel are doing a good job to kind of capitalize on that. And I feel like we need more of those things. Like, I think those things are great and, and we need more. So to hear somebody else, to hear a design leader at Lyft or at, you know, Google or at, you know, wherever say like, yeah, uh, trying to convince people to use this thing is hard, right? I think we've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners to go like, oh, I'm having that problem too. And I thought it was just me. So I think, you know, that was part of the impetus for the podcast is let's just let people, you know, talk about the problems that they're having. And, and we don't, we actually specifically don't get into the solutions a lot. You know, it's not like, oh, and this is how we solve that problem. It's like, yeah, this is hard. Me too. You know, like, and I think that yeah. even that is like, is good enough for a conversation and a worthwhile conversation to have. 
Well, it's it's nice to have that camaraderie. Uh, if I said that word right, probably not. But it's nice to be able to talk to somebody else about a problem that you're having and and them having a, a similar or the same problem and uh, just talking it out makes you makes you feel a little bit better. And sometimes you come up with an idea uh, afterwards too. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, speaking of, and I, I'm sure I'll embarrass her. I I, I know we we talked about Sarah's book, which is. Uh, uh, building design systems. You, you should get her on the podcast if you go to thundernerds.io slash Sarah's book, uh, funny URL, but um, she she couldn't be with us today. She's uh, It's her anniversary, so I uh, just wanted to wish her happy anniversary, Sarah. And uh, Brian, I hope you're feeling better. I know you're sick, but um, I wanted to throw that out there for a little happy anniversary to Sarah. But um, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say happy anniversary to Sarah too. And uh, and I love that book. That's a great book. I recommend that book to, for, to a lot of folks too. So thank you for writing that book. That's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of books, um, you know, obviously you have a, a well-known book out there that uh, people love, which is, uh, let me uh, see if I have an image of it. I thought I had a, no, well, Pricing Design, which is a, a great book, but I, I saw a tweet uh, the other day where you were talking about uh, a possibly a, uh, a new book on the horizon. Uh, any Anything you could tell us about that new book? Anything at all? I, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. Uh, you are putting me on the spot, but that's okay. I can tell you that it will probably be a book. And uh -huh. probably. With pages. With pa yeah, it might be some writing also in it. By me, I think. That's it? Nothing. Nothing else? That's what I got. <laughs> That's perfectly understandable. Just thought I'd try to just, you know, edge it out a little bit and see if I could get something out of you about that book, but that's cool. That's fine. You, you might get a gaffe here and there if you keep poking at it. <laughs> cool. You know, um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about that I thought was really interesting is the uh, Envision app thing that you're doing with, uh, I think it's, what is it, with Josh Clark and Brad Frost? I, I'm not sure when that came out. Is, is that fairly recent? That was maybe uh, two or three years ago, so I think maybe 2017 or 2018, something around that. Boy, I'm in the I'm in the past. I, I find it really interesting because I was I was going through some of the videos and it was um, just it was very insightful. Uh, I, I, at least I thought so. Um, I I loved how you know you went into the, the some of the episodes here, the the heartache of design. Here, actually, maybe I should scroll down a little bit here, which is here you guys are and. Yeah, so the heartache of design at scale, uh, selling the value of design systems, which um, struck me funny. I, I wonder, uh, is it is it still difficult to sell the value at, at this point now, um, two years later? Um, it is difficult. I think it's difficult for different reasons two years later. So I think that, that you know, when we made oh, the, yeah, the okay. podcast, or excuse me, when we made the, the videos, um, selling the idea of design systems was still a thing that we had to do. You know, we helped our, a lot of our clients with, with doing that where like someone in an organization that usually comes up from the design or engineering or product group is like, I heard about this thing or I know about this thing. It's really good, but nobody else here knows about it. So I just need help evangelizing the idea. So a lot of times we would help evangelize the idea of it. Nowadays, we almost get no pushback on, you know, from any level of the organization where people go like, yeah, yeah I know a design system is worthwhile. Like, I get it. It's a good investment for a company. Um, what we end up doing, though, is 
um, is when you have that conversation is still difficult. And that's the thing that people still do poorly, um, you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in my observation, which is that people, what, what teams try to do is they try to sell it before they made anything, right? And it's like, it's like trying to sell vaporware, right? So what a lot of teams try and do is they try to say like, they try to make their case for like, if we had a design system, you know, here's the ROI and here's some examples of other folks that have, you know, done well with the design system and they try to sell their leadership on that, but it's still vaporware. Like you haven't made anything yet. Right? and you haven't done anything about it. Um, and so it's hard to sell. It's hard to say like, if we had this, it would be great. And so dear leadership, would you drop a million dollars for us to, you know, or half a million dollars or $3 million, you know, whatever, however many millions of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars to even do this? And leadership is like, no, <laughs> because I don't know what I'm <laughs> buying yet. You know, and I, for what it's worth, I think that's a smart decision. That's what I would say if I were in their, in their shoes too. And, you know, and that goes to the kind of counterintuitive way to make design systems is like, what you do is you make a bunch of stuff first. And then you say to your leadership, we, we did this in a very specific way. And these are just little mini examples of what we could do. And we want to try and scale that now. Right. So you basically have to you pitch your you make your MVP and then you pitch to leadership and you go, if you want us to do more of these things, now you just have to do math. Now it's like the efficiencies that we had on these three small projects, multiply it by the number of teams we have, the number of people we have, the number of products we have. And then they start to do the math and go like, oh yeah, we could see how that, you know, how that goes. And that becomes a much easier sell. So it's, it, it's more, it's still difficult, but it's difficult for different reasons than when we first made that video series. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh... I, I, I could see uh, where somebody would uh, bring that to, like you were talking about, the, the one things for, you know, directors, but if you could bring that to a C-level or uh, a VP and communicate the value and uh, really the uh, the bottom line of, of the cost, what is this going to save? How is this going to make us more efficient, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, I, a few people uh, DM me and they wanted to know more about your your day to day. What actually you uh, you do at Super Friendly? I mean, we could we could all guess that, you know, obviously you're um, you know, you're you're probably putting these design systems together. You're you're organizing with um, other members in your team. Um, do you mind just walking us through of, of what that looks like? Yeah, totally. I'm uh, I'm pulling up my calendar now to go like, all right, well, what's what's even on my calendar? What have I been doing the last couple of days? Um, I don't work on projects anymore. I haven't worked on projects in a couple of years. Um, I am probably bad at them at this point and uh, and like a little too salty about about client work now. So it's probably better that I that I don't work on projects. So for me, super friendly is my project. Um, last year, you know, so like we covered earlier, I'm the only employee. Um, and I think a lot of folks are like, oh, that's probably means like Super Friendly is a small, a small crew. Last year, we had about 60 people working on Super Friendly projects across the year. So it's, it's kind of like running a 60 person agency, except some of the rules aren't defined yet. So my time is generally spent like working on Super Friendly to figure out like, how does the model work? How does it scale? How do we pitch? I do some marketing stuff for Super Friendly. Um, uh, so, you know, that's kind of the stuff that I do. I'm looking at my, you know, my my stuff today, uh, my calendar today. So what I did today was this morning I had a conversation with um, with a writer who's helping me express what Super Friendly's values are, so that we can we can publish that on, on that more and uh, more about how we work. So I talked to her about that. Um, then oh today I had 
Every Thursday, we have an, what we call an opportunities call, um, where for every super friend, whether they're working on a project or not, we invite everybody to, to hear about all the leads that we have and what the opportunities are for super friendly. So if anybody wants to work on a project or they want to hear about what's going on, you know, we have, we have that open every Thursday. So I did that you know, uh, today. Um, I talked to my co-founder at Arcade. We had kind of a one-on-one on, on like, what, what's the vision of this product? Where do we want to go over the next couple of months? Um, I talked to my my head of operations today because she was like, I have a better way for us to do everything. I'm like, sweet. So she shared with me like some diagrams that she's been making about like, what if we did things this way? I'm like, that's awesome. Um, I had a one-on-one after that with um, with our designer at, at, uh, at Arcade, Julia, um, and I did some critiquing with her. Um, and so that was my day. That was my day today. If I were to describe to you my day yesterday, it would look completely different than that. Uh, but those are the <laughs> kinds of things that I do, um, you know. And most of it is not really, you know, designing much. Although, well, I, I should say today I designed a new landing page for Arcade, you know, to work on with Julia, you know. So I designed like sort of half of it, and then kind of handed it off to her to to finish up. Um, so you know, I still do some stuff like that. It's kind of random. I don't know if that helps answer the question. Yeah, I, I think so. Are, are you still one of those uh, early, early, early bird people? I, I can't, I can't get my mind around that because I'm a <laughs> night owl. But uh, for one of the things I, I, I read or saw about you is that you you get a lot of your work done between five and seven. Is that still true? Does that yeah, does that totally. resonate? Yep. So yeah. I, I get up usually around like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. I work for about an hour or two before like getting my kids ready for school and dropping them off at school. Um, and so like, that's my, that's my time where I'm like alert. My brain is ready. It's like, you know, I've, I've slept, I have rest and my brain is like, cool, let's go. Let's do some things. And I'm like, all right, excellent. Nobody's tweeting at me. Nobody's emailing, nobody's slacking, nobody's that like, so that's the time where I'm like, all right, ready to go. And I get most of my work done at, at that time. For, for the people that say like, wow, how, how does Dan do all this stuff? Is it is it more just that, you know, it's it, it's part of your lifestyle? Like, like, for example, if if you want to be a runner, if you run, which I, I run, if you want to run, you can't you can't miss a day because it's easy to fall off and then not do it again. Um, you, you have to live it. And it seems to me like what you describe in your in your schedule there, which is uh, very busy. It's just this is just the way you live. This is your, your life is, is part of uh, an integrate part of your life, right? With, with, with work. I think so. I, I mean, I think it's relative, right? Because like, it's sure. sort of surprising sure. to me when somebody's like, Oh, you get so much done, because I feel like, ah, yeah, like yeah. I, I, I admire other people. I'm like, well, they get so much done. So relatively, I don't get a lot done, you know, but I but it is relative. So I think Part of it is part of it is that part of it is just you know what your frame of reference is. Um, the other part of it is like I and I, I was lucky to learn this um, I don't know maybe ten years ago in, in my career, which is like there's this thing called Parkinson's law. Uh, do you know Do you know Parkinson's law? You know what I'm talking about? I'm not aware. No. All right. So Parkinson's law says something to the effect of work expands to the time allotted to do it. You know something like that, which is like if you uh-huh. give yourself eight hour if you give yourself eight hours to do a thing, how long is that thing going to take to do? Probably eight hours. Um, if you give yourself four hours to do it, like, it'll probably take four hours. So like, I, I believe in the corollary of that too, which is that work contracts to the time that you give yourself to do it. So, you know, before in the past, like I remember when I was working at, at one job, um, I always thought that like, okay, in order to do like a concept, you know, round of design, that takes a week. And then I remember starting, and this is when I worked at, at Happy Cog, um, you know, we, we took a week to, to do design rounds and to a, a design concept. And then when I when I left Happy Cog and worked at Big Spaceship, the first day that I started at Big Spaceship, 
you know, they were like, hey, Dan, like you're working on this project now. Like they kind of onboarded me and like, we want you to do a concept. I'm like, okay, cool. Like how long do I have to do this? And they were like, oh, it's due at the end of the day. And I was like, okay. Like, I mean, I, I was used to having a week, but I didn't want to be the new guy who's like, no, no, I want more time. So I was like, yeah, yeah of course I can do it. And you know what? I got it done by the end of the day. So it just taught me that like work doesn't have like a defined time like you define the time, you time box it. And so I've gotten really good at that because I've been able to practice that a lot. So, so now I know like if I have an hour to get a comp done, I can, I can do it in an hour. If I have, you know, three weeks to get a comp done, I can do it in three weeks. And, um, and so I've been able to compress my work into the time that I have because that's the time that I have, you know, having kids, you know, certainly accelerated that as well where I'm like, ah, I just don't have the time right. that I had. So I, my work has to now fit in a smaller box. And every time that happens to me, I'm, I'm like, well, it fit in the smaller box. So with COVID, um, I stopped working. You know, I, I would I usually worked about like 30 to 35 hours a week um, because of COVID, because my kids were home. And then, like, you know, figuring out like, who, like, is my wife doing homework with them? Am I doing homework with them? Is she going to sit with them during the day? Am I going to sit with them during the day? Like all of that stuff. What I started to do was like, OK, I'm just not going to work in the afternoon because I, I, I can't. So I would work in the morning and then I would stop in the afternoon so my, my wife could work in the afternoon. Um, and so I, you know, my schedule became around like 20 hours a week. And you know what? I got the same amount done. So it's like, you know, the, like as, as much as I keep contracting my work, it still gets done. Maybe not to the quality that I want it to, but that's always been the case. When I had a week to do it, it was still not at the quality that I wanted it to be. When I had three weeks to do it, it was still not at the quality that I wanted it to be. So it's like, I, I learned to be more free about that stuff and to go like, I'm not too worried about the quality of the work. Like, let's let that be a later thing. I could always iterate my way there. Let's, you know, there's a time that I have and so I'll try to use that wisely. That's excellent advice. Um, Dan, we're getting right at the end of the show. And as I asked you uh, before we started, if you could play us out a little bit. But first, I want to get to, um, uh, you know, obviously, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to all the places where people could find you, which is uh, danmall.me. Uh, there is um, your Twitter account, which goes by your name, Dan Mall. I see a pattern here. Um, usearcade.com and superfriendlydesign.systems. All, all really cool names, which I like a lot. Um, but uh, I'd love to ask you at the end here uh, if you could provide any final words of wisdom for our audience. Uh, so to you. Oh, man. That's the toughest question you've asked so far. Uh, be kind, I think, you know, to yourselves, to other people, um, the people that you work with, the people that you interact with. Um, you know, I think that we are all guilty at some level of working too hard. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much. You know, that's the, a lot of the stuff that we do, I think that we are lucky, you know, generally as web designers and developers and all that to, to do this, the things that we do. Um, I often have to remind myself that I'm not saving lives um, in ways that other people do, you know. And so when I get stressed out, like it's a good way to remain relative, you know, to go like what I do is is a good choice and a good privilege for me. Um, and what I try to do with that is like be kind to myself, give myself breaks, be kind to the team that I have, um, be kind to my family, to all the people that I interact with. And so, you know, I would like it if other people were kind to me, too. So if anybody interacts with me, please be kind to me as well. I like that. I think I actually uh, one of the things I saw in your house. Not that I'm looking in your windows, but uh, one of the one of the photos I saw was uh, like a, a be nice and uh, let people be nice to you. The one of the golden rule things, right? 
Maybe. I don't know if that was me. That might have been somebody else. No, no, no. It's you. It's definitely you. It's in one of your photos. I'll, I'll, put, okay. I'll put a link to it because it's definitely okay, cool. you. Yeah. Uh, la last thing before we end the show, I just wanted to get in uh, uh, Todd Libby's comment here. He wanted to ask you, how was the whoopie pie that came with the lobster roll care package? It was very good. I'm not a whoopie pie fan. Todd was kind enough to send me lobster rolls uh, in the mail because I told him I had never had any before. So he sent me a really great uh, care package with some whoopie pies and some delicious chips and, uh, and lobster rolls. It was all delicious. Thank you. Thank you, Todd, for all that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And if, if you don't mind, Dan, again, we're we're at the show. Do you, do you want to play us out a little bit, a little something on the piano? I know. I can, um, yeah, yeah you, you've you've played the piano since you were uh, three years old, from my understanding, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yep, I got a piano here. I don't know how the audio is going to pick up, but we'll we'll try. We'll give it a shot. Let's try it out. Yeah. Here we go. Dan Mall, Dan everybody. That was really cool, man. Thanks for sharing that with us. I, I remember when we talked back at um, at Event Apart, you were telling us how you uh, you you played uh, piano since you were three, and uh, you enjoyed it. And your parents didn't really force you into learning it, but you you just kind of picked it up, and uh, you really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so you know, to this day, I got a piano in my office. Whenever I want to take a little break, I try to play a little something. Yeah, it's nice to have that separation to just uh, step away from your screen for a minute and just be be a part of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. It does a weird thing yeah. to my brain when I switch between the piano keyboard and the keyboard on my desk. It's like my brain doesn't catch up fast enough. It's very trippy. <laughs> there, there's no control Z on the piano. It's weird. No, none. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Time is the most important thing that we could share. And uh, really appreciate it. Really humble. Thank you. Thank you. Th thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Our, our pleasure, honestly. Oh, uh, some some applause from, from Todd. He, he very much liked your, liked your playing. Well, thanks everybody for watching. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Again, thanks, Dan. Thanks for consuming the Thunder Nerds. We honestly and sincerely appreciate you watching and or listening to the show. Please subscribe on YouTube and iTunes. Write us review. Keep a few stars our way. I enjoy the best podcast for technology out there, and that is Thunder Nerds. Thunder Nerds. Thunder Nerds. That's our new intro. <laughs> exactly. I hope you don't mind if we use that. I'll have to say about it after the show.
I love penguins. I love Frederick. Oh, I love penguins. I should have known the Terrator didn't mean us any harm when the Sword of Omens didn't obey me. And anyway, it was just plain stupid to assume it might be bad. Just what the <laughs> fuck am I talking about?